0: Hey Nick. Hey Liam. What insect hates Christmas? I don't know. What insect hates Christmas? A humbug. Oh God. (laughs) Is there such a thing as a humbug? No. No, it's just a phrase. Yeah. I think we should name an insect a humbug. One that hates Christmas? I'm sure we can find one that hates Christmas. There's enough diversity in insects for one of them to hate Christmas. Hello oh, lovely listeners and welcome to another episode of Entocast So I mean, you're on the lovely listeners bandwagon now Well, like I said, once you've opened that can of worms there's no closing <laughs> that particular can of worms But today with Entocast we're doing a Christmas special Cue the Christmas music Thanks Nick you um, <laughs> myself in the future and today we've moved the Entercast studios to Liam's lovely home. And we are joined by a special guest, which is Jess Bartler. And she's going to tell us about her work in Antarctica with insects.
1: Hello. So,
2: <laughs> so hopefully you see what you did there, you know, Antarctica, cold, cold. Christmas, there's a link, there's definitely a link. Trust <laughs> us, there's a link. And also, you know, apologize if we're massively overexcited because we are a pair of big kids and we love Christmas. It's probably our favorite time of year. Nothing emphasizes this more than the fact that Liam is at
0: the moment wearing a colorful Christmas jumper with reindeer on it and Christmas trees that lights up with LEDs. So, this is how much uh, we love Christmas. He's just <laughs> turned it on. I actually <laughs> currently litter. I think you should leave it lit up for the rest of the podcast. That could be like a recording on light. <laughs> The fact that your jumper's lit up. <laughs> so, as you can hear, there's another person with us today, and that is Jess Bartler, our guest, and you went to Antarctica to study insects. So, first of all, what are insects doing in Antarctica, and what insect were you looking at?
1: The insect I was looking at is a type of flightless chironomid, so a little midge. It moves around in the soils like a detritable. <laughs> and it's called Erymoptra murphyi, and it's actually been there for a, a long time. It's historically endemic to the area, to Antarctica, along with several other Chironomids um, So Erymoptra murphii is related to a couple of other midge that you'll find in Antarctica. One that lives even further south called Belgica Antarctica, which is actually on the continent proper, whereas Erymoptra murphii is in the Maritime Antarctic, so on a small island just off the peninsula.
0: How does it survive Antarctica? Obviously, this is a very difficult condition to survive, and as we were talking about in our winter episode, it's a hard case for insects because they don't produce any heat themselves. They're completely at the whims of the environment. So how is it surviving in Antarctica?
1: Well, luckily enough for where it is right now on Sydney Island, the summers are generally quite positive temperatures, but they still have to combat the winters. Obviously, they can't migrate. They are stuck where they are. And living in the soil, they are very liable to freezing. So. Going back to what Scott mentioned in one of your previous episodes, they either have to learn to avoid the freezing altogether, either physically or through various physiological mechanisms, or they can actually tolerate being frozen. So like within their, their cells themselves, they can tolerate being frozen. And at different life stages, this insect, Eteropter murphii, it can either avoid or tolerate. So it, it's pretty hardy and it can freeze well, it doesn't even freeze, like, his whole body doesn't freeze until about minus 19, so it's it's pretty tolerant.
2: <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. So it's actually employing both different strategies depending on the life stage. We
1: think so, yeah. Um. So one of its earliest instars is very, very tiny, microscopic, and it's very, very sensitive to desiccation. And we think it might be able to cryoprotectively dehydrate. Mm. So that's a feature that you see more with insects, well, not insects, but uh, tardigrades or columbola. It's not so, something that you would see in a, a higher organism like this midge. So we're gonna be exploring that to see if that's a strategy it uses in the earlier life stages. It has four inch stages, and by the time it gets to the fourth, it's a couple of millimeters long. So then it's able to, to tolerate the freezing a little bit more, and we, I have actually frozen it in blocks of ice, and wow. they survive.
2: Tough midge. Why are
0: you studying it? What's the point in uh, looking at this particular image? You said it seems to be historically endemic to the region.
1: It is, but it was pushed out um, with the glacial maximum to South Georgia Island, which is in the Maritime Antarctic, so not strictly within the Antarctic Circle. And it's been there ticking over. But then in the 1960s, in a... uh, yes, a, a... Plant transplant experiment that went awry. Um, <laughs> let's, shall we say, it was brought to Sydney Island, which is within the Antarctic Circle, much closer to the peninsula, much more of an extreme environment. And they didn't realise that they were transferring the soil creatures at the same time as testing if the plant survived and introduced this midge and also an Enchotraid worm, which isn't doing so well, but the midge is thriving. And that's partly because there are no other competitors or predators on this island. It's a very, very basic an ecosystem. There's no other terrestrial invertebrates. In fact, it's the biggest thing on the island as a terrestrial organism.
0: So is there a risk there of it becoming invasive?
1: There is. It's doing so well, partly because it's pathogenic, so it doesn't need usual swarming patterns in order to spread and replicate so it can bypass a lot of the environmental factors that prevent or that limit populations from really exploding in the polar regions so it doesn't have to fly it doesn't have to find a mate it can just wake up and just get on with it straight away so its emergent season is across a few months rather than a single swarming event and that means it can spread throughout those few months as well it gets a real good head start on it so it is becoming invasive Its population is spreading and what we think as well is our activity on the island is actually moving it around in our boots. So we're at further risk of spreading it again and currently we're a little bit concerned about it being able to get anywhere else because we know from previous physiological studies that it's pre-adapted to even colder, even more extreme environments because it has this historical association with the area. The main worry is that it would get to the continent proper.
0: But you said this is a very basic ecosystem, mm-hmm. there's not a lot going on there. So what is the damage? What, what is the problem of they being invasive?
1: Because it's a detritivore, and there's nothing else in the soil there that's doing anything like its job, it's effectively having an influence similar to, I always think of it as like having uh, buckets of baby bio and pouring it on completely <laughs> non-fertile soil. It's a, more of an extreme example, but just to get the point across, if you've got pretty sterile soil that's host to just a few microorganisms maybe some collembola maybe some very small mites but in, in no abundance and then you add something that's capable of doing the job of an earthworm and nothing's going to compete with it nothing is going to predate on it and nothing is limiting its population spread so you can have areas where there's 150,000 individuals in a meter squared it's just bonkers So inevitably, they're chewing up the soil and the detritus and pulling out fertilizer at the back. So there will be having an effect on nitrogen cycling, they might be influencing things like the levels of phosphorus in the soil as well. And this will have really big impacts on a polar ecosystem that is evolved to not need those things. So the mosses that grow on Cygni, which is the dominant vegetation type there, they prefer to have low nitrogen. And In fact, if there was too much of it in the soil, they might be negatively impacted. So you end up having these trophic effects. And what we also don't know is the effect that this huge population of such a voracious insect in the soil is having on the other communities around it, so the columbula and the mites that are endemic to the island. So one of the things I'm looking at, as well as the physiology of this bug, like how is it surviving there, is what is it doing to the island and Mm. do we... Need to be very, very worried about it getting anywhere else, or are the impacts that it's having quite minimal?
0: Ho ho ho,
2: Merry Christmas, one and all! Ho ho ho. One of the themes of um, not just insects but all organisms in the very extreme environments that generally it seems to be environmental variables which are, have a bigger implication on their lifestyle rather than biological you yeah. know I mean? go somewhere like the tropics and it's all about competition
1: yeah it, it will be because you've got to be able to tough out the winters and not only tough out the winters but make the most of the the growing and the feeding season when they do arrive the arctic moth who has a really really long life cycle and it's in its larval stage for years and years and years and years because it can only come out for about eight weeks or so to feed and then it'll go back into hibernation, and then come back out eight weeks for the next year to feed, and then go back into hibernation for winter, and so on and so forth, and can carry on for years like that. And by the same effect with Eremoptera murphii, it too has a very long life cycle for a midge. So we're looking at two years for that in the larval form, and then a very brief pupation, and the adult survives not much more than a week.
0: So you talked, though, about the moth having like a dormant period in order to survive the adverse conditions. Is mm-hmm. there any evidence that this midge has any similar strategies?
1: We're not sure. Um, so we're still at the very early stages of trying to work out the life cycle of this midge. And hopefully we'll have some publications out soon. But when I started my project, I had a, an essentially a blank canvas. Some of the physiology of the midge had been done, and been keeping a vague eye on its distribution on the island. But because of the two-year life cycle and the problems associated with getting a culture going in a laboratory, and obviously it's not like you can just pop out to Sydney Island in Antarctica (laughs) and check on it in the winter, and see what's happening in its development phase. It's meant that it's been a bit of a struggle trying to crack its life cycle. We're there now, just about, but we still don't know if it goes through proper dormancy or not.
2: Given that it's so difficult to do field work in this environment, so you can't just pop out and, and see what's happening, have you managed to do any field work in association with your PhD?
1: I was very lucky that I did. In fact, I spent last Christmas in Antarctica. So we left in December, and I was on the island for three and a half months, and was able to catch the majority of the exciting bits of the life cycle. So when, when everything's beginning to pupate and emerge and lay eggs, and was able to classify all the stages there and also tie it up to a little bit of the phonology as well. And that's when we found out that actually, unlike all of the other chironomids that are in Antarctica, whether on the continent or in the islands, it doesn't have a single mass emergence period. It just dawdles along and pops up whenever it's ready across the whole summer.
0: Taking a brief uh, step away from entomology for a second, do you want to tell us what it was like to go to Antarctica? Oh, it's amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. It was intense, really intense. But I'd wanted to go for a really long time, like a decade. It was the reason that I studied zoology in the first place. So for me, it was an absolute dream come true. And the experience of even just getting there was, was brilliant. It was kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. But I knew as soon as I stepped on the island that this was just the beginning, so I'm itching to go back already. (laughs) But it it was really, really good and we had a a really productive um, scientific field season. The weather wasn't horrendous, so so we had some good days out. It was just a wonderful place to be because a lot of the Antarctic bases, whether run by the British Antarctic Survey or not, are becoming increasingly accessible. So with Rothera, the largest of the British Antarctic bases, you can fly in. Whereas with Signy Island, you still have to sail in by boat over several days. And then when you're there, it's a tiny island, just five by three miles wide. And you're there with half a dozen other people for months. And you might get your boat popping by. But the longest time we went was two months without seeing anybody but each other. And when new people arrived, oh my goodness, I was just like, I just clung to their
2: legs.
1: (laughs) It was brilliant. It was so nice. But it was, yeah, it was a a brilliant experience. Absolutely fantastic. Completely fell in love with icebergs. (laughs) Completely. I know, it sounds funny, but they're just... They're not very
0: huggable icebergs.
1: They're not, but they are are really awesome. And the, the light down there as well, because of all the ice, is really interesting and it's... Like, all of the pictures that you see of Antarctica and the icebergs and things, they're always quite blue and turquoise and it's not really like that. Everything's kind of pastel and then if you get a good sunset or the sunrises are just exquisite, you have really interesting cloud bases, which just makes everything just really magical. And you have these huge, big chunks of an old ice sheet that's been disintegrated floating past, and you're looking at something... And you have to remind yourself that that's formed over almost geological time. And it's so beautiful. And yeah, I don't know if you could tell, but I was smitten.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And you said you spent Christmas there as well? Yeah. What do people do in Antarctica for Christmas? I heard a rumour that people try and get hats on penguins, like party hats onto (laughs) penguins. I just wanted to know if there's any truth to that.
1: We didn't try that, but I think I might send them out an email. (laughs) It was quite traditional actually. So the week before, we put the tree up and decorated and yeah. had all of the, you know, those, those really tacky foily things <laughs> Tin- that you hang from tinsel. the ceilings. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not like the ones that are like um, slinkies. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. That's
1: <laughs> so we yeah we just bombarded the the living space with with all of this sparkle and stuff. And then on Christmas Day itself, the station leader has his tradition. of He makes a proper Christmas dinner, big roast dinner with all the trimmings. And the rest of us went out for a, a hike and left him at home to make the dinner and watch old Western movies, which is his <laughs> Christmas Day tradition. We went up to the ice cap, which covers a huge portion of the island. The island's divided by this mountain range, and the ice cap falls down from it. So we hiked up to the base of the ice cap where we had... A snowmobile and loads of expedition polks. And we drove up to the top of the ice cap, which is a few hundred meters. It's not big mountains, but big enough. And then slid back down in the polks.
2: Oh,
1: nice. <laughs> it was brilliant. So we had a, a run of about a mile, which was just fantastic. And to just. Yeah, just skidding down a glacier effectively on yeah. an, an expedition pulse really fast as well. Um, so <laughs> it was quite a skill to work out how to get the things to break before you flew off the end of the glacier. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> um, which is, I've got some really funny GoPro footage as well of me pretty much failing to do that <laughs> and having to be caught by people before I plummeted. So yeah, we had a, we had a brilliant afternoon. And then after we were all windswept and ruddy from the sledding we went back and had christmas dinner and watched movies together and um, yeah it was brilliant
2: so one of the things we've talked about in in the past uh, the episode we did on by and my work we've kind of talked about what the future might hold for different insects around the world and i just felt, wondered what your take on your particular insect what what the future has with these different climate change scenarios i imagine such a sensitive environment, there could be potentially some interesting implications.
1: Definitely. And generally speaking, most insects, especially this type of midge, will benefit from warming temperatures. So I think what's likely initially is that we will see an increase in the population because its climatic envelope will broaden slightly. So that will make the summers a little bit warmer. Um, and it also mean that the precipitation events rather than being snow which is a bit more preventative to egg laying we'll have rain which is no burden to them at all really so I think initially it's going to benefit them my concern regarding climate change for them is that it might open up other habitats for them so they're on Cygni already we're kind of I wouldn't say a write-off on Cygni but they're there we can't get rid of them it's done we just need to make sure that they don't get anywhere else really, where Mm. they could do any more damage. So as climate change goes forward, we're likely to see more ice-free areas and areas that have that level of peats and moss that they like available to them open up. So if they are given the opportunity to expand their distribution to other places, probably by catching a lift with us, to be honest. And if they get there and they find that there are these habitats available, then that's when we're going to really see a, a, a boom in there in their populations and their expansion throughout Antarctica.
2: And
0: would that have a knock-on effect to the Antarctic ecosystem, these guys? You said they already have like, quite a big effect on the Signia ecosystem. Well, we think
1: they do, yes. You think they do, yes. <laughs>
0: but in the continent proper, I mean, would you project that they would have a big impact there?
1: I would think so. So in areas of the Antarctic Peninsula where you have uh, Belgica or Antarctica, they will be essentially be doing the same job, but I would make the assumption that if you were to find Eremoptera murphii alongside Belgica and they were to compete, it would be Eremoptera that would win because Belgica is a sexual species um, and is dependent on those single emergence events where it can swarm, whereas Eremoptera is not. So in that regard, it would have a big impact because it can turn over what the system there is used to and increase the number of chironomids in the soil. And then in areas where, again, where there has been nothing like it, there are no higher invertebrates, there is nothing in the soil, there are no detritivores in the soil on that scale, then over time, yes, absolutely, we would have the strong effect. How that will react to a system that is newly ice-free and moss has not established, so rather than effectively killing off the moss by increasing nitrogen levels, or at least having a negative effect, maybe you might find that could potentially and this is really really big picture long term thinking here. It could potentially open up the habitat for different vascular and non vascular plant species to encroach as well, whereas they weren't pre- previously able to get. Um, what's the word I'm looking for?
0: Get a foothold. That's it. Yeah. Root hold. Root hold. <laughs> get yeah, a right root literally. hold.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so where they wouldn't be able to get a root hold because not only is the environment too extreme, but the soil is too poor. If you introduce a species that's able to add that nutrients to the soil then maybe then with increasing ice-free areas and all the changes to the soil you would then see some very different effects uh, of the vegetation layer as well but this is all really really long-term stuff like we're probably talking over centuries here Um, but still it's worth understanding it so that we can either try and prevent it or at least know what's going to happen if it does
2: can we spin this as a positive thing, though? You know, I always think plants are good, and with so many environments being endangered by climate change, say so deserts spreading from the centre, everything seems to be shifting towards the poles. Mm-hmm. Um, is it not natural for these environments to go through some kind of series of succession away from mosses to the vascular plants? And if Eric Mocha can speed that up, could they potentially be useful at ecosystem engineers?
1: You could look at it that way, yes. You could also look at it as the greater vegetation encroachment that you have and the more ice-free areas that you have is a bad thing because if the ice isn't there, it's going somewhere and it's going into the seas and that we're not so keen on. But as for being ecosystem engineers, they are. You can spin it both ways, to be honest. I'm quite on the fence. I just try and stand back and just report on what it's doing and what's happening.
2: Good science. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just very interesting to think what could happen. And we still don't know enough about ecosystems, period, to say whether it's a good thing or not, mm. like even if you just discount whether less ice means higher sea levels. So studying the ecosystem impacts of this um, insect is what drives me more than the physiological elements, although they are very tied up together. And because it's such a basic ecosystem on Sydney Island and throughout the polar regions, it means that we can get that much closer to cracking how they work. Obviously, it's really, really hard to understand how an ecosystem might work in the tropics because there's so many different interactions. Whereas when you get to somewhere where you've got really nutrient-poor soil, you've got very few moss species, let alone um, vascular plants, and only one higher invertebrate, then that's a very short-linked chain. So working out the cascading effects and how the ecosystem might work as as a model is a lot easier. And it's not until we can understand an ecosystem and even we could maybe even sustain a basic ecosystem properly that we can truly understand the impacts of climate change. And we're a long way off.
2: The other thing I was thinking about you said Belgica and Erythmoptera are both chironomids. Mm-hmm. So are the only insects in Antarctica chironomids? And, and if so, what is it about them which makes them able to? kind of survive in this environment where there are no other insects or even higher invertebrates?
1: As for why it is all chironomids that are the higher invertebrates, I don't really know. They're they're successful for quite a few reasons. They like the constant saturation of the soils. They're generally all stemmed from aquatic chironomids, so the swarms that you might be more familiar with here in the UK. And they like the boggy environments. And they are quite temperature sensitive, but that said, there is a species in somewhere in Africa, it's one of the most freeze tolerant insects in the world. And that's a chironomid as well. So this there's, there's something about chironomids that means they're just really hardy. And I don't know enough about them as a group, to be honest. I'm pretty niche <laughs> with my one species. But they have a reputation, whether it's in the poles or in deserts, that they can live in in temporal environments, so that they can either live in fully saturated terrestrial environments or they can live in, like, poles that dry out in deserts, effectively. So they're they're really, really really interesting, really interesting group.
0: What do you see as the future of this research? How will this go forward with the life cycle information that you've accumulated so far throughout your PhD?
1: The next paper that we're putting together now is looking specifically at the physiology of the eggs. So what can they tolerate? Because so far we've worked out that the the hatching success rate of the eggs is actually quite low. Even for a sheronomy, which lays hundreds if not thousands, these guys only lay 48 and 29% of them only go on to hatch. So where they actually lay their eggs is an important feature in their reproductive success and thus forecasting how well they can expand. And then after that, I'll be working through the soil cores that I took whilst I was in Antarctica to map out their distribution to see how far they've got in the last 10 years since their distribution was last analysed. And then we'll be looking at the ecological impacts. So I'll be looking at the soil chemistry, again, from samples that I collected to see what levels are associated with the higher population densities. And then after that, oh my goodness, there's so much that we can look at one of the big things that's on the horizon for this species is sequencing its genome and we think it's going to be pretty small so that's the next big step for for this species really once i've wrapped up with my phd
0: All of your research activities in the past, or what you've done in your career so far, has focused on extreme environments. I was just wondering why that is. You seem to have either been in the Antarctic or the Arctic. <laughs> um,
1: I grew up in Cornwall. Um,
0: so, definitely the Arctic,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And it was just, it was always really sad that we never had any snow-capped mountains anywhere nearer, and... <laughs> And I was always quite adventurous, I suppose. When I was a kid, I ran away from home when I was four. (laughs) You know in those cartoons where you see the the characters walk off with a stick? The yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're walking off. So I did that when I was four and just wandered off um, and just got to the nearest your carriageway and sat down on the embankment because I couldn't cross the road without my (laughs) mum. And uh, I got picked up by a little old lady on a moped who probably took me back home to my mum who was distraught. There were several episodes like that throughout my whole childhood, so I've always been interested in adventuring and exploring (laughs) and the combination of that and just wanting something that was as different from Cornwall as possible. And I started reading books by female climbers and then started getting really interested in the kind of heroic age of mountaineering as well, fascinated, deeply fascinated by Everest and all the ascents in the Himalaya. And then that led me on to the exploits of Scott and Shackleton and then it was when I was watching Frozen Planet one day, I just really felt that Antarctica just looked like the most incredible place. Mm. And I thought that if you had the opportunity to go there, that would just be such an extraordinary thing, because you'd be in quite a minority, and if you did nothing else in your life, you'd be like, wow, I went to Antarctica. And that kind of started me down the line. When I was studying zoology at the University of Nottingham, my dissertation assignment was to look at the insect communities living in Heracleum swandilium, common hogweed, and to look at them over winter. And it was the winter of 2010 when we had, Aha, yes, yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> and I was living in Derbyshire at the time. Oh, so God. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see the car for like two weeks. It was buried under snow, but <laughs> so were all of my study sites, but I kept digging them up and I kept finding um, temperate insects still kind of rocking around in the soil alive and well when um, the soil temperature was minus five. So that really piqued my interest into what these guys were doing and how the hell they were doing it. And that started the ball rolling. And I was lucky enough to get an EU scholarship to go to Norway to do an internship with the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. And I spent three months there working in the mountains and that really refined my own mountain craft and the ability to be able to work in such hard environments and in small teams. I think that just really solidified it for me, that these environments where the ecosystems are so fragile yet can tell us so much, and with insects having such a really interesting interface, like the interface between insects and the abiotic factors, such as the chemistry of the soil around them, which can impact their own cold tolerance, and then they can affect the the chemistry which will then impact the plants that can grow there. That combination of biotic and abiotic factors just fascinated me as an ecologist, So I was just hooked and from Norway I went to the Arctic and then from the Arctic I managed to go to Antarctica and I hope to keep ricocheting between the two for the rest of my
2: days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Obviously you were psyched about going to Antarctica, it was a dream come true for you. What is the best thing about Antarctica? What did you find was the best thing and what was unexpected? What did you not expect to like that you did?
1: I never expect to like skewers. Um, <laughs>
0: um,
1: and at the same I wouldn't say I like them. I have a lot of respect for them. They stole a lot of my science. Um, they're <laughs> so these really... <laughs> are like
0: seagull type Yeah, things? so they're,
1: uh, they are a type of gull, um, but they look a bit like eagles. They're, they're brown and very smart looking birds. And they are very smart, actually. But they nested on the moss banks around where I was doing my science. They were just very, very curious and fearless And sometimes they'd harass me, sometimes they'd want to investigate my samples. And you'd literally just hold them out and they'd peck it and then look at you expectantly like, why is this not a food? And one day even I was taking a seawater sample and one of the youngsters came down and landed at my feet and looked at me and I poured the seawater out so it could see what it was. And it got grumpy because it was seawater and started pecking my shoelaces. But I thought they were brilliant, brilliant birds. But, yeah, they did steal a couple hundred pounds worth of temperature loggers. So, (laughs) (laughs) not that brilliant. Um, And my favourite favourite, it has to be the icebergs. Uh, Yeah, they just stick with me. Um,
0: Just
2: love lettuce.
0: Oh, (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. That's a mid-dad joke, like midway through the episode (laughs) dad joke.
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Are
0: you so happy with yourself? So so (laughs) listeners
1: know, like the little puns that you get at the beginning of every episode, that is Liam 24-7. I sit opposite him and it's just like that all the time. And we just spend so much of our days just groaning with our heads in our hands like we are now. Anyway, icebergs, not the letters kind. No, they are magnificent. And I was so obsessed and I've spent a lot of time photographing them. And I still pore over the photographs I took of them today. You don't get them anywhere else. You only get them at the poles. And if you're in any question, when you're looking at the blue seas and the grey rocks with all the lichens mm. that we're quite familiar with and green mosses, you could forget where you are. And then you look up and you've got an ice sheet floating past you. And it's just, yeah, it's wonderful.
0: Well, it sounds absolutely incredible. I'm not sure whether I could deal with it. Um, I might have to take some thermal underwear, but uh, <laughs> it sounds absolutely
2: remarkable. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much for talking today. Just listening to you talk about this, your research. Just one thing that really stuck out in my head is just how awesome insects are at surviving in this extreme habitat. Yeah. So we see time and again when no other stuff can hack it. The insects are there, mm-hmm. going strong. And mm-hmm. um, keystones in the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Jess. If our listeners want to hear anything more about your work, is there anything you want to sign person towards?
1: Please um, visit me on Twitter, which is uh, Jessamine, J-E-S-A-M-I-N-E, C-B. And also my Instagram handle, which is the same, but with a dot between the Jessamine and the C-B
0: thank you for joining us but I think that's all we've got time for this time I hope you all have a Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Merry Christmas, <laughs> Merry Christmas. and uh, don't forget to subscribe if you like hearing us tell all your friends
2: as well and like all our social media and uh, now that just leaves us to thank the Royal Entomological Society for kindly sponsoring the podcast and we shall be back in the new year with some more episodes so Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to everyone You can what? actually do, like, origami insects. Yeah. You don't look could.
1: I knew somebody who was, like, a qualified origamist from Japan. Like he... I didn't
2: even know there was a qualification. I didn't
1: either, but he was, like... Is it, like, a
2: secret society of origamis? <laughs> I don't
1: know if it's very secret, because he <laughs> told oh, me about it. <laughs> it's not like
0: you, you have an initiation. Secret society secret. He, he... You
2: have initiation to join, and they, like, give you a piece of paper, and you've got, like, a minute to the piece of paper. Make a bear, go! <laughs> you
1: are... He made me a bear. He did actually make me a bear in A very small amount of time, but you have to pass exams,
0: origami exams. There are actually origami exams,
1: yeah, I know.
0: Incredible, like
1: you you can be like a black belt or a garmist or something,
0: 10th Dan or a garmist, yeah. yeah.